0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. If you'll stand for our reading tonight, we'll be in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Starting with verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Good evening, good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. If you are visiting with us for the first time tonight, I wanna say welcome to you. My name is Brad. One of the pastors here love to meet you after the service I'll be hanging out up here would uh, love to say hello well on uh, October 31st Halloween our family went out in our neighborhood and did the thing we we went to the houses and got the stuff and it was quite an experience as we came home I noticed the kids bags were pretty full and so I joked with him on the way, and if you're a parent, you've probably heard this joke before. But uh, you guys know there's a parent tax to the Halloween candy, right? And of course, the young ones didn't know what that meant, and we had to explain to them that a portion of uh, their candy that they got themselves were ours. We got home, we began to look at the candy that they had, and... Initially, it wasn't a big deal. They shared, because there was a ton of candy, they shared some with us. Um, but also, one of the interesting things that happened while they were sorting their candy is they began to notice the different kinds of candy that they got. Some of them got more chocolate stuff. Some of them got more fruity stuff. Some of them got some things that they didn't want. And they began to say, Well, it's not fair. I didn't get that particular kind of candy bar or that particular kind of fruity candy. And they began to trade. That's one of my favorite things to do as a kid, trade candy, right? But what was so interesting to me, whether it was talking about the candy tax or that it wasn't fair who got what kind of candy after uh, they were sorting their candy, uh, I have never taught them about the issue of fairness. I've never had to say to them, okay guys, this is what looks like when something is fair and this is what it looks like when something is unfair. I've never had to teach my children about that idea at all. Here's why. It's hardwired and it's into them. It's hardwired into us. A sense of fairness is deeply embedded into who we are as human beings. It's a part of the cultural air that we breathe. It affects policy decisions and politics and laws and lawsuits and families and friends, all kinds of areas. Fairness is a big deal. Now you may not call it fairness, you might actually call it justice. Whatever you call it, fairness, just, uh, justness, justice, right, righteousness, whatever it is, we can for sure say that sort of embedded in us is this idea of a fairness. And as we have already begun to see in the book of Romans, which we're in, the idea of a fairness is gonna pop up quite a bit. It's already come up in the first couple of chapters. Tonight we move into chapter three. And here's the thing that we need to remember as we even think about this broad idea of fairness. If you approach the book of Romans with the firm belief that everything in this book has to make sense to you or has to fit into your sense of fairness, there are going to be some things in this book that are gonna be really challenging to you, even alarming to you. Romans three tonight is no exception, although I'm not sure, as you heard Lauren read that, if you maybe, my here was my thought, Um, as I was studying it uh, this week initially, was, what does this have to do with me, right? Because Paul is talking about the Jewish people primarily, and there's a reason for that. But tonight we are continuing a series that we began a few weeks ago in the book of Romans, first 11 chapters of Romans that we're calling Reign of Grace. And what we're doing in these first 11 chapters is looking at Paul's sort of magnum opus, his, his theological um, uh, just like er, treatise. I mean, it's like everything that he wants to download to us about what he believes about the deep things of God. And it's through this kingship, this reign in our lives that we experience his reign of grace. In his reign of mercy and his reign of love in our lives and in our church. It's not just meant to be experienced personally, but it's meant to be experienced corporately. And tonight we come to a passage that absolutely confronts our sense of God's fairness. And as we enter into our passage in Romans tonight, I just want to invite you to see one big thing this evening. And it's this. The solution to our questions of fairness is the character of God the solutions to our questions of fairness is the character of God now let's do this real quickly uh, we're gonna try to do this from time to time as we move through, through this book let's review really quickly where we've been so that maybe Romans 3 if you're just joining us for the first time tonight in our series makes sense to you um, the bad news Of Romans 1 was that God shows no partiality. We are all condemned by our sin. We are without excuse. And because of this, no one escapes God's judgment. That's the bad news of Romans 1. But the good news of Romans 1 is that the righteousness that God demands of us is the same righteousness that he gives us through Jesus, by faith. So it's not something we have to earn or come up with. It's something that's given to us through faith in the work of Jesus for us. And then in Romans 2, we have seen that how this plays out with the Jewish people. Uh, basically, Paul says this, as it relates to God's righteousness, if you say that anything you do contributes to your salvation... You have not only added to the gospel, you have nullified the gospel. You avoided the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Now, after laying this out in Romans 1 and 2, Paul, the, who is so just a genius, anticipates that there will be objections. If you're a Y guy or a Y gal, you're going to love Romans because Paul anticipates your objections, your questions. And in this Eight verses here at the beginning of Romans 3. He's going to tackle three of them. What I want to do is to show you those objections, how he addresses them, and then how he answers each one. So let's start with the first one. Look with me there, beginning in verse 1. The first objection that Paul uh, responds to relates to what Paul has said last week about being Jewish or pointing to where you come from uh, as somehow. Uh, contributing to your righteousness. And you can hear this pretty clearly in verse one. Let me just read it for us again. Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? If I could re-articulate this argument in a way that makes sense to us, it would be this. This is the argument that Paul is responding to. So if keeping the law and getting circumcised are not central to righteousness, what's the point of the Jewish people and God's plan for them? Let me just say that again, repeat that. If keeping the law and getting circumcised are not central to righteousness, what's the point of God asking the Jewish people to do those things if that's part of his plan for them? So Paul answers part of that question in verse two. Look there, just read that again. He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that have to do with verse one? You might think Paul would agree with the statement that being Jewish doesn't matter. But he does something counterintuitive here. He actually affirms Jewishness much in every way when he says that and he gives what appears to be the first of many reasons. Now one of the things and Trey touched on this last week. One of the challenges of Romans is this. Paul doesn't like wrap up his argument within a passage or even a chapter. He he argues and and responds and makes statements over a course of many many chapters and in fact really what we're starting to talk about tonight Paul doesn't totally clear up until we get to Romans 9 through 11. So you've got to stick around and be here for that so you know where, where Paul is going. But um, one of the challenges is that we've got to try to understand tonight, at least in part, what Paul is, is doing here. Here's what we're going to do right now for this. We need to just lay some groundwork for what Paul is doing here. So within evangelical Christianity, there are differing views as to whether Israel in Romans and really the rest of the New Testament means one of three things. One, some believe that it's a true spiritual Israel that includes Jews and Gentiles. Second, that a remnant of believing ethnic Israel will be saved. Or third, a national conversion of the people of Israel at a future date. There is a ton of... Of stuff that we could talk about with just those three things tonight. We do not have time for that. I hope to over the course of this series be able to explain some of those things some more because this question about the Jewish people in Israel is going to come up uh, over and over and so we want to make sure that you, you understand. But what can be said is this, Orthodox Jews generally do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I'm using those words very carefully. Generally, do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, even in our own city, um, there are, there's a, 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 a grouping of Jewish people that call themselves Messianic Jews. That's a totally different thing. I'm not talking about that group. I'm talking about Orthodox Jewish people generally do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, actually saying that is going to help us make sense of the next verse. So if you would, look with me there really quickly. Regardless of your views on the, on the place of national and ethnic Israel, Paul makes the point in verse 3 that the Jewish people were unfaithful because of this disbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul is saying because of that, they were unfaithful. They did not have faith that Jesus was the Messiah. So Paul anticipates a question here. Does Israel's faithlessness mean that God is not faithful. In other words, God's promise to Israel was not only unfulfilled, it wasn't true. So according to this objection, this is what the objection to Paul would be. It's unfair for God to judge Israel for unfaithfulness when God's promises are not really true. Again, that's that's the objection that Paul is going to respond to here in just a moment, but that is the objection. Now, if you haven't noticed, we're getting into the deep end already. Romans three, friends. I'm just going to tell you, we're going to be in the deep end from here on out. Hang with me, and I will just say this too: one of the things that I want to invite you to do, um, in addition to the conversations that you may be having in your missional communities, is grab one of our of your pastors here and say, "Hey, man, tonight was really confusing. I had no idea what Brad was talking about. Can we chat and hang out and?" Uh, talk a little bit. We would be honored to do that with you. Um, This time is so limited, so hard sometimes, and so we'd love to serve you uh, in that way. Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse five. We're going to begin to look at objection number two here. Remember that in the beginning uh, in Romans 1, verse 18, Paul said this. He said that the unrighteousness of humanity actually serves as a backdrop on which the gospel is displayed. Mysterious, yes, but in some way, in God's ways, unrighteousness actually is, it can serve as a backdrop to the gospel. The gospel is glorious, even more so in some mysterious way because of the inglorious nature of humanity. Most of Romans 1 and all of Romans 2 made that very clear. And Paul is anticipating another objection here, someone suggesting that this, set up is unfair. Look there at verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? This is very similar to a, a verse that we're gonna hear later in Romans, Romans 9.14, 4, 4, uh, 9, which you've probably heard before. You've probably not heard a ton of, of Romans uh, 3.5, but you've heard Romans 9.14, which says, what shall we say, in, uh, say then, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Same idea. There are ways that God operates in that might cause someone to raise the question of fairness. So in verse 5, The logical conclusion is that since humanity is hopelessly sinful and since salvation is a gift which maximizes God's glory, it seems that God is unfair to punish people for the very thing that makes him so glorious. Are you with me? If unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, how is it even fair or even right that God punishes helpless, unrighteous sinners. That's the objection. So, in short, the first objection is related to God's truthfulness and the second objection is related to God's righteousness. Now, objection number three. This objection is a bit of a the ends justify the means argument. Paul anticipates someone suggesting that since disobedience produced the eventual glorification of God why is disobedience punished look there beginning in verse 7 again let me read that to us again but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory why am I still being condemned as a sinner and why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying let's just stop right there for a moment there are actually two aspects to this objection first Paul foresees that some people might say that our lying, which is judged by God's truthfulness, gives him glory. So why does God condemn us at all if it works out for his glory anyway? It's a good question. One might ask the question maybe this way, why does God hold me accountable for a sin if it's impossible for me to do anything else and if it's results in him, make him receive glory? But then second, the second aspect of this objection is he identifies that some people are actually saying that his gospel, the gospel of God, uh, amounts to to a license to sin, that you can keep doing evil because God's grace comes to you apart from your works. The point of this objection is that if bad produces good, what's the problem? So now that we've seen these three objections that Uh, objections that Paul anticipates, let's go back and see how he addresses each of them. First, objection one. To the charge that God is unfaithful because of Israel's failure, Paul states that God is true even when everyone else is a liar, verse four. And he prefaces that statement with may it never be, one of Paul's favorite expressions to something that is outrageously untrue. Then he quotes a text about David's moral failure to show that even when people are unfaithful, God is still true and just. In other words, Israel's faithlessness does not mean that God has failed. In fact, God's judgment of that unfaithfulness will prove that. Second, to the charge that it is, it is unrighteous for God to hold people responsible for something that makes him righteous, Paul appeals to the Jewish understanding that God is going to judge the world. In in verse six, we see again, may it never be. And then Paul simply appeals to their assumption regarding this future judgment. His argument is that if the Jews are not judged for their unrighteousness, then Gentiles will not be judged either. The idea of final judgment was a foundational concept in the Jewish worldview, and this is why Paul appealed to it. For the people of Israel, their salvation was directly tied to judgment. They're inextricably bound together. But third, to the charge that the gospel is about doing evil so good will come, Paul simply says their condemnation is just. The end there of Romans 3 8. Notice that he does not go into great detail here as to a defense of the gospel or a refutation regarding the idea that on a person's lie is an. Uh, is an effective means of God's truth being somehow more well-known. Paul does not even really address this charge specifically. That may frustrate you as a reader. I promise you, he's he's laying out a, he has a long game here. He's going to lay out his understanding of a lot of these things over the course of chapters. But instead, what he does here in Romans 3, 1 through 8, is basically say because the charge is ridiculous, he appeals to God's judgment once again. There's a theme actually through all three of these responses to the objections and it's the judgment of God. So let's talk about what Paul is doing here. Paul assumes that there will be Jewish people who will question the fairness of God in different ways, even in our time. In fact, Romans three, one through eight, a lot of Romans confronts the Jewish people in many ways. Paul anticipated this continued disbelief in Jesus as Messiah and what Paul is really doing here in one sense, this is the near application of this passage, is trying to help Jewish people wake up to the reality of Jesus as Messiah. But the far application is for us. What I mean is this passage actually has something to do with us as well. As Paul is appealing to not the fairness of God, but rather the judgment of God, Paul actually isn't wanting to focus on the judgment of God. What Paul is doing is saying, I want you to focus on the character of God. In pointing to or appealing to God's judgment, he's appealing to God's character. Here is what Paul is confronting the Jewish people. And if we will let it, it's something that we need to be confronted with too. How do we resolve things that don't make sense to us about God? Friends, there are some questions and issues in this life that will never be solved completely. Particularly questions about God and why he does what he does, but also just the things that you and I experience in life. Paul. this passage is pointing to judgment but what he's really doing is pointing to the character of God the way that the questions that you and I have about him and about life are answered not by appealing to the fairness of God that's what Paul is saying here but by appealing to the fact that God is not like you here's the one big idea that I want you to see tonight the solution to your questions of fairness is the character of God. Friends, there are truths in the Bible that are designed to make us realize this stunning truth. It's a freeing truth, but here it is. You are not God. What Paul is doing here is saying, fairness is not the ultimate answer to what is right and wrong in the world. God is. We are gonna see that all over the book of Romans. The book of Romans is aiming to show us that the ultimate purpose of everything in life is to point us to God and His glory. And there are times when the objective is so beyond our thinking. You're gonna walk away from some of these Sunday evenings and just go, man, I, I don't understand that. But the answer is God, you're God, and I am not. I'm curious, what is in your life right now that you would look at God and say, that's not fair? Now some of you have things that you've walked through or are walking through right now in your life that isn't fair. There are such things as injustices done against people. Suff, uh, suffering simply is touches us all. Paul isn't in any way minimizing that suffering or, or real injustice somehow isn't like you, something that you don't experience or walk through. He's not minimizing that at all. What he is challenging us to do is to think What are we gonna do with the things that we would say are real or perceived injustices or suffering? What are we gonna do with it? Where are we gonna take that to? Who are we gonna take that to? See, many times if we're honest, injustices that are done against us cause us to look at God. And when we say that it's not fair, what we're really saying is, God, you're not good. I deserve better. But friends, we know that can't be true, that God isn't good. He is good. And because he is good, and though it may be mysterious and we don't understand why we have to walk through the injustices or the the the, the suffering that we walk through in life, we can do this. We can know that the solution to our question about fairness is the character of God, who God is. Friends, as we walk through life, we're gonna be needing to be really careful that we do not assume that we understand how everything works. Or that we will somehow be able to make sense of of everything. I mean, there are things in the Bible that I read and think, "I, I don't get it. And I think in part, what that is meant to do for us is to humble us. By, by actually just kind of astounding us past the point of our own understanding. Take Job for instance, God never told Job what was really going on behind the scenes for him. God felt that it was sufficient for Job to simply know that he was in control. Or we could say it like this, instead of only asking why in life, we need to make sure we're also asking right aso- alongside the why, who. The answer to the who in the end, excuse me, the answer to the why in the end is the who. Friends, the solution to fairness or our gaps in understanding about who God is, is actually God himself. In other words, it's not that the things in your life always have to make sense to you, rather it is that you can choose to trust in a God who knows better than you. Do you believe that? Does your trust and your faith in that God, uh, do you like experience that in your life? Does, does, Does your faith reflect that? You believe that about God? You know, there is even an element in the gospel that is fundamentally unfair. Just hang with me here for a moment. God poured out our judgment on his innocent son. And he gave us a righteousness that we never deserved and we could never earn. So when we think of the fairness of God, we need to always remember that even the cross wasn't fair. But it was through the cross, this work that Jesus did on our behalf that God can now bring about redemption, salvation, forgiveness, hope, joy, freedom to his children. Later in Romans 11, Paul says this, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Amen. Will we believe that? Will we live in light of of that? Because you will ask the question, God, why aren't you being fair to me? And God's answer to you is that the solution to that question is me, my character. Praise God that his ways are not like ours. Let's pray together.
0: Heavenly Father.